Amen. Please take your seats. It gives me great delight this morning to welcome to our pulpit Paul Mulner. Paul's a, a brother, a dear friend, and he's been a tremendously and enormously helpful influence in our church as a leadership consultant as he's, he meets with us at least once a year to help our session think through the next big thing that God's calling us to accomplish. And so I can't imagine, Paul, where we'd be without you. And it's a great delight to welcome you to the pulpit this morning. Come bring God's Word to us, my Thank friend. You, Good morning. As you all turn to Jonah, chapter 3, hard to find in your Bible, one of those short books. So I'll vamp for a minute by saying that I noticed this morning at the early service, even in myself, you, you climb up into a pulpit where you're the visitor, and you're suddenly inspired to speak in very ancient and apostolic terms. I, I bring greetings from the saints in Atlanta. Uh, it, it, it sounds a little better than the folks down in Atlanta said to tell y'all hey. Uh, but we are very grateful for you. We're grateful for this church. We're grateful for your prayers, for your support, for your financially encouragement, phone calls. Some of you are so kind to send notes of encouragement to me and to our elders and I do send you our gratitude for that. I, I'm delighted to be here with you and pray that God will uh, speak to us together this morning from his word. And that we'll go out of here, uh, if even just a little bit, changed by our encounter with the mighty God. I want to ask you this morning, how much grace is too much? And I guess the answer is it depends on who's receiving the grace, doesn't it? Sometimes we look at others and think that they've gotten just a little bit too much grace, more than we would have given them. And we look at our own lives and we think we've been given not quite enough. As you can tell from the title and from the hymn, I do want to talk about grace and the nature of God's grace this morning. But in order to do that or to understand it well, we have to first talk about failure. Jonah is, in many ways, a book about failure. Jonah is a failure. He failed God by running from him rather than toward his will. He failed the pagan sailors on the ship by bringing them adjacent to his dangerous disobedience without pointing them to the one who could deliver them from it. He failed himself and those he loved. By casting himself into the sea. Jonah was a failure. And I bet you have your own list of failures too. No matter the bluster that we have or the, the face that we try to present toward others, we all have a list. The things we tried and failed. The things we did that actually failed. The things where we failed because we were too fearful even to try them. And of course, our lives are filled with failure. Moral failure. Sin. We fail to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we fail to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We all have a list, don't we? The consequences for most of these failures are mercifully small. In our jobs, we miss a detail that we should have considered, or we miss a deadline, and we'll get the next one. 
in our relationships, we're harsh or selfish, we hurt, frustrate, or inconvenience, but thankfully, those who love us get over it (laughs) or are quick to offer forgiveness when we repent. And so we move on. From many of our failures, we simply move on. But of course, there are also those failures in life every now and then that are too big for that. The boss isn't just disappointed, the job is lost. Financial strain has become financial ruin. Relationships are no longer just tense, they're broken. And sin, even sin that your loved one may by grace be able to forgive, they will never forget. When the failures are big, sometimes too are the consequences, aren't they? And in Jonah's story, this is the point in which most of us are pretty sure that he's about to reap what he's sown. He disobeyed God. He fled from his calling and from his presence. He failed to speak the truth about God's character, first to the Ninevites by refusing to go, and then to the sailors. And to try to escape what God was calling him to do, he even tried to take his own life. And even with that prayer of repentance in chapter 2, I ask you, would you have given Jonah another chance? We hear a lot today about second chances. I've tried to think about this and look at what makes the difference between when we extend them and when we don't, and I think it comes down most of the time to two factors. Can you help me, and did you hurt me? Can you help me, of course, is about whether or not the person will be useful to us in the future, whether or not we think we need them. It's a silly example, but many of us follow sports, and there we see it all the time. The star athlete, essential to his team, in the middle of a great season, is convicted of DUI. But of course, we need to give people second chances. Isn't this America? Everyone makes mistakes. Nobody is perfect. And underlying all of this is, look how much he has to offer us. Meanwhile, the mediocre player in the mediocre season finds that we have a zero-tolerance policy for these kinds of things. Some people handle forgiveness this way, don't they? Perhaps you have gauging your willingness to forgive by what you want or need from the person rather than by gratitude and awareness of how much you've been forgiven. The second factor is, did you hurt me? And the emphasis is on me. For you see, when the sin is against you, when you're the one who needs to give a second chance, I will quickly tell you that you ought to do so. But in those times where I am the offended party, where the sin is against me, I need you to better understand the circumstances. This situation is more complicated than you think. If these factors were God's guide, what would happen? Well, Jonah would not receive a second chance, I can tell you that. What does God need from Jonah? He needs nothing. The thing that God gave Jonah to do, he stubbornly refused and walked away from in disobedience. God could raise up a faithful and obedient prophet as easily as he could raise up a replacement for us and our responsibilities. He has no need of Jonah. 
And who more than God was affected by Jonah's sin? Ever think about that from this book? Whose will and word was ignored? Whose plans were challenged? Whose character was both silently and vocally maligned? On Jonah, God is the most offended party of all. And so by our man-made criteria for second chances, we judge Jonah as not worthy. No grace can come here. And then by the law of reaping what you've sown, we come to expect some pretty hefty consequences. And that is why in all of Scripture, as strange as it sounds, Jonah 3, 1 is my favorite verse. The word of the Lord. Let me pause there for a moment because the word of the Lord is not just words on a page or philosophical construct. Scripture teaches that the word of the Lord is God's self-revelation. It's how he shows you who he is and what he's done and what he will do. This is most perfect and complete, of course, in Christ, but every word from God reveals the truth of his character and his works and his plans. And even this message for Nineveh is no exception. God is holy, and he is just in his wrath against sinners. And we will find implicitly, God will forgive those who repent. The word of God the Lord. And the text says that this divine revelation, this word of the Lord came. Now I'm going to pause there again, as silly as that seems, but I want us to see that Jonah did not know this word intuitively. He didn't follow a path of enlightenment through his hard work and study to see where these mysteries were hidden. He did not attain this information by human wisdom. It came to him. God, by choice, for no other reason than his own pleasure, brought his word. And he brought it to Jonah. To Jonah. And in chapter 3, it says he brought it a second time as if to remind us that this word, this same exact self-revelation had come to Jonah before. It precipitated his many failures. It came to him before and he responded in selfish disobedience. It came to him before and he squandered the possession of it. In our estimation of things, that's why we expect the consequences to come. But instead, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The great irony highlighted in nearly every scene of the book of Jonah is that what he dislikes the most about God is what Jonah needs and receives from God on every page. His grace. Now, of course, he doesn't say he dislikes grace. I've never heard anyone say that they dislike grace. But what bothers Jonah is that God's grace is out of control. Or at least, out of Jonah's control. 
God applies it to situations where Jonah would not. He applies it in ways that Jonah would not. And he withholds it in moments where Jonah thinks his sense of justice requires it. And so to Jonah, God's grace is out of control. It is unpredictable and it is therefore arbitrary. Let's start with unpredictable. Because whether or not God's grace is unpredictable is a question that Scripture answers with a no and with a yes. No, because there is one way in which God's grace is completely predictable. The grace of forgiveness. What we just experienced together in Psalm 51 Genuine confession and repentance, which God can work in us himself, will always be met with grace. Always. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you live knowing that that's true. I hope that you know that genuine confession and repentance will always be met by God with his grace. Jonah really messed things up. And given his failure and rebellion, there's very little that happens in this book to him that we could have predicted. I'll talk in a moment about the unpredictable aspects of God's grace. But if we've listened to God's self-revelation in Scripture, we should have been able to predict this much. That when Jonah confesses his sin and repents before the Lord in chapter 2, what follows in chapter 3 is grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, full, stop, always, and forever. Jonah 3.1 is not the first grace we've heard of in this story, but it is the first predictable grace because it comes after the first time Jonah acknowledges his own sin. And what is predictable, what is assured, and this is essential, is not that God would restore Jonah to ministry. That's actually quite unpredictable. It's not even that God would reveal himself in a a way of special revelation to Jonah a second time. That's unpredictable. But that God would, from Jonah's confession, restore Jonah to fellowship with God himself, we all should have seen coming. Because that is what our God does. No matter how far we get from God in disobedience, or like Jonah in hurt and in anger running away from his providence, we're hurt by or we're angry about the way that God is unfolding our lives. Nonetheless, God will hear our cry for forgiveness. He will hear our cry for reconciliation. Hear my cry, O Lord. And he will answer. And Jonah, though himself a frequent recipient of this fact, is pretty resentful of it. But I need to admit to you that part of the reason why this is my favorite verse and book in the Bible is that I really get where Jonah's coming from. Because sometimes I'm resentful 
of it too. And I wonder if you ever are. People will ask me, haven't you read the rest of the book? He didn't even really mean the repentance of chapter 2. He goes right back to his selfish ways after one spiteful sermon. He's not changed by his confession. He doesn't deserve the grace of forgiveness. And I think to myself, yeah, that sounds right. The predictable aspect of God's grace makes some Christians uncomfortable. Because after all, if God's grace for forgiveness is predictable, aren't there people who will take advantage of it? And don't we need to police the situation, making sure that no one gets it who doesn't deserve it? That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. It's why he resisted telling the sailors about Yahweh, the God of grace. He didn't want them to have an encounter with him because he knows that if they were to call out to God, he would heal them. And again, I admit that I really get where Jonah's coming from. Sounds awful from a guy in the pulpit, I think. But I've rolled my eyes at the repentance of people around me. Haven't you? I've thought to myself, or God forgive me, even said, she said it before, or maybe this is the time he'll actually mean it. I'm fine if God wants to forgive them as long as they first prove their deservedness to me. What a shame. And I say what a shame, not just for the obvious reason of the, of the arrogance implicit in that response. I say what a shame because when we approach forgiveness and others receiving forgiveness that way, we actually miss out. We miss out on the opportunity to celebrate what one reformer called the remarkable display and proof of God's grace which is his forgiveness of them, which we should see and should drive us to rejoice and to praise the God of grace for giving them awareness of their sin and for calling out to them and to praise the God of grace for forgiving them by his grace. Forgiveness happens every day. It happens every time we come before the Lord in confession. But have we gotten tired of it? Have we forgotten what a miracle it is? Are we forgetting to celebrate the grace of God as it is expressed in our lives? I thought in this second service, what a, what a wonderful God we have teaching us. Even through the songs that we sing, I, I, I marked them each of the songs that we sang in this service this morning that has some moment where it calls us or teaches us to praise God for His grace to us. To never forget, in fact, to ask God, as as one hymn says, to train our hearts to sing His grace. And when we approach forgiveness, for others, or even because of shame and guilt in ourselves, 
using criteria other than God's that put grace and forgiveness at arm's length, that, that attach conditions to them that Scripture does not have. We put heavy loads and burdens on ourselves and others in the exact moment where we should be rejoicing in the grace of God. What a shame. Beyond genuine confession, God requires nothing, not one thing, for sinners to be reconciled to Him. What we have in Christ is not conditional forgiveness or partial forgiveness. What we have in Christ is forgiveness. It's like clockwork. It's without fail and it's without futural, future behavioral conditions. And that's why I hope that's what we're extending to others. Forgiveness. That is not partial. That is not conditional that does not wait for them to change or to please us. And brothers and sisters, those of you who have tender and heavy consciences, who carry guilt and shame from your own sin, I hope you hear what God says here clearly. It is not partial. It is not conditional. It is grace. It is forgiveness. Failure, and especially sin, has consequences. Sometimes they're what we would call natural or direct, and sometimes they're disciplinary or punitive. The grace of forgiveness that comes from confession does not exempt us from consequences. When we confess, as I've said, we can absolutely count on forgiveness from God, and we should be able to count on forgiveness from one another. This is most important and what we need most, but it does not grant us a world in which our sin never happened. Children, sometimes this is what we hope for when we say sorry, isn't it? We do something wrong, we let our parents or our siblings or our friends down and and they confront us and we realize that it was wrong and that we shouldn't have done it and we say sorry, but what we want is not just forgiveness, we want to get back to the game. We want to pretend as though it never happened and sometimes we can and, and sometimes we can't. Teenagers, this happens a lot in teenage life. I remember, especially with parents, I'm on the other side of it now. We messed up. We sinned. We failed. And our parent comes to point this out to us, and we eventually admit it and take responsibility. We ask for forgiveness, but what we want is for it to be forgotten. We want to go back to a world where that failure never happened. Sometimes it can, and sometimes it can't. Those of you who are married, I probably don't even need to use illustrations of how this works in marriage. But that expectation that forgiveness begets forgetfulness, and that expectation that forgiveness demands our circumstances return to as they were before, that's actually quite dangerous. It's at the heart of insincere confession. Because sometimes we confess not because we 
hate the sinfulness of sin, but because we want things to go on as if the sin had never occurred. And I'd I'd ask you to consider, and, and hear me clearly, not as a condition of forgiveness. I do hope by now you understand what I believe about forgiveness. But I would ask you to consider when you confess, just as a gut check, ask yourself, if you were granted forgiveness, true, genuine forgiveness, but nothing else, no circumstances are restored, nothing that you've lost is given back, if you repent and confess and are forgiven only the sin, but all the consequences remain, is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? And if it's not, and there are times for me when it is not, and in those times I find that I have forgotten just how much that forgiveness is, and that in fact, my unwillingness to live with the consequences of sin in this life run the risk of cheapening the forgiveness I've been forgiven, that potential of trying to Forgive and forget means that forgiveness accomplishes nothing unless people forget I ever hurt them. But forgiveness all by itself is such a miracle. Do you see that? It's reconciliation with God. It's the holy and perfect God of the universe. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I'm sorry. And his answer is not. We'll see about that. And his answer is not. I hope so. We'll see if you do differently next time. His answer is. You are forgiven. In the blood of my own son. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And it requires no forgetting in the sense in which we mean it. Of course, there is some forgetting. The Bible uses that language. Isaiah 43 and Hebrews 8 say he remembers our sin no more. We, we, uh, in Psalm 103, it's as far as the east is from the west. But God is not forgetting that our sins ever occurred His mind is perfect. It contains all of history's events without exception. And he's the one who delights in forgiveness. He doesn't forget your portion of the story of redemption. His forgetting does also not absolve us of the consequences of sin in the natural world. He made the natural world. For the unmarried couple now expecting a child, neither her pregnancy nor his lifelong responsibility are forgotten by God, even as genuine confession will forgive sin. Now what's forgotten is the guilt of sin. The moral debt that we owe because of it, that death which is the wages of sin, not just death in general, death for you and for me, the sinner. Every sin, and therefore every sinner, deserves death. And what God removes as far as possibly can be removed from one another is us from that death. It's a miracle. 
He moves it from us to Christ on the cross so that it can be forgotten. It's a miracle. And it's a gracious miracle that we cheapen when we act as though the only thing that matters in repentance is that the people around us and our circumstances act as though the mistake were never made. Your sin may cost you your job, and even with forgiveness, you may never get it back. Your sin may break trust within your most important relationships, and even with forgiveness, they are never the same. Sadly, there are times where our sin costs us nearly everything. And in those times, God may choose to restore our health or our wealth or our relational peace the same or better than before, but He also may not. He may not give us any back of what we've lost. But do you know that even when he doesn't, his grace still did something amazing. He took a rebellious sinner and reconciled them to a holy God. Even when our sin has cost us all else, God in his grace has given us the one thing that matters most. And sometimes he has to take from us the one thing we think matters most so that we can learn even in a very hard way what actually does. Now the grace of verse 2, the restoration of Jonah's circumstances is not greater than the grace of verse 1. It's just the moment when this grace is unpredictable. And so we're far less likely to take it for granted. And that's good. One of the joys of the Christian life as we mature is to see more and more ways in our lives where God's unpredictable grace is at work. To see the ways that he protects us that we didn't even think to pray for. To think the ways that he blesses us that we didn't even have the courage to ask for restores us and saves us from the consequences of our actions even when we had no human right to expect it. The grace of a wounded child lifting their eyes back up to an angry parent in hope and love. The grace of a boss who doesn't care if you deserve another chance will give one anyway. The grace of a spouse who forgives and resolves to put the pain in the rearview mirror and drive on. And the grace of Arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah is not alone among God's prophets compromising his message by their own sin. And so we get to see that God's grace regularly intervenes. I hope you don't get tired of it. I hope you don't take it for granted. I hope you haven't stopped looking for it. The grace of God and forgiveness is utterly predictable. And it is a miracle. And we should praise God for it all of our days. And in our circumstances, difficult as they become, trying as they can be, even when they are simply 
the consequence of our own sinful choices far more than we could ever imagine and infinitely more than we ever deserve. God's unpredictable grace works there too. The irony of Jonah is that by the end of the book, he will still not approve of God's grace. He'll fight against it. He'll view its works with contempt. He'll try to undermine its purposes. But you know what? He receives it anyway. And so will we. He may restore our circumstantial fortunes. And when he does, praise God, how gracious is he with his people. Or he may not. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he will always forgive. And therefore, we will always bask in the joy of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, give us a vision. Give us sight. Eyes to see your grace at work in our lives and in the lives of those we love. Help us not to look inward at ourselves and what we lack, or downward at our circumstances. Help us to look upward at your grace, which you have richly lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And by that vision, may we live lives of joy, free from the burden of our guilt and shame. Lives that are quick to forgive others, even for the offenses they've done against us. And lives that wait with gleeful expectancy to see what you will do next. Give us this sight. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen.